We've been talking about uh, suffering already quite a bit this morning, and I want to ask us, how as Christians should we think about suffering? How do we think about suffering? How do we think about hardship? And again, as Christians, there are a lot of weary and wounded people in this world, and I suspect that there are more than a few in this room today, weary and wounded, not just people, but weary and wounded believers. So how do we as Christians think about suffering? Many of us have been deeply hurt or abandoned by the very people who were supposed to love you unconditionally. Many of us have been stabbed in the back or falsely accused or unjustly punished for something that we didn't do? How many of us have been the target of evil intentions? How many of us have been victims of physical or sexual abuse? Stolen opportunities or stolen possessions? And how many of you have wept at night Because as all those things surround you and affect you and flood you, you just can't yet see your way out of the trauma and the suffering that you've endured. You know, suffering and hardship are life's constant companions. That's a reality. But I'm afraid that for so many Christians, that reality is crippling. And it's crippling because we struggle to know how to answer this very, very crucial question. And here's the question. Where is God in the midst of my sufferings? Where is God? If you're asking questions like that, I want you to know that our passage this morning will help to answer that question. Where is God in the midst of my sufferings? We're going to wrap up our study of Genesis today. We've been looking at Genesis all summer. Uh, Again, we've not looked at the entire book of Genesis. We've been looking at key moments in Genesis, specifically ones that sort of point us forward to Jesus. Today, we're going to wrap that up by looking at the last major scene in the book of Genesis. We're looking at a young man named Joseph. Joseph. Last week, we read about Jacob, if you were here. Jacob, you recall, was the son of Isaac. He's the grandson of Abraham. And Jacob was renamed by God. Remember what he was renamed? Israel, right? And Israel, Jacob, had 12 sons of his own. And those 12 sons would go on to become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph, who we're looking at today, is the youngest of Jacob's 12 sons. Now, I bet when you think about the main characters of the book of Genesis, Joseph isn't the first name that you think of. When you think of Genesis, maybe you think about Adam and Eve. When you think of Genesis as a book about creation. Or maybe you think about Noah and the great flood in Genesis when you consider God's judgment of humanity's sin after the fall. Maybe you think about Abraham when you think of Genesis as a book that talks about the covenant promises of God. And of course, if you're thinking about Genesis in terms of its covenant promises, you not only think about Abraham, but of course you're thinking about Isaac and Jacob as they are the fruit, they are the heirs of that promise in Genesis. Those are the main characters that I think we most often think of. But do you ever think about a guy named Joseph? Would it surprise you if I told you that Joseph's story makes up a whopping one-third of the book of Genesis? One-third. Why would Moses, who wrote this book, why would Moses devote so much time telling us about this young man named Joseph? Well, there's a good reason. I said already we've contended throughout this sermon series that Genesis points us to Jesus Joseph's story, I think, is one of the greatest of those pointers. 
Nancy Guthrie, who wrote a, a Bible study and a commentary on Genesis, says this. She says, Joseph was the first of many deliverers God sent who would picture and point to the greater deliverer God would send in his own son. Joseph is the first of many who will save his people, deliver his people as a pointer to Jesus. And the way that Joseph and then eventually Jesus would save God's people, get this, was through the pathway of suffering. God's economy, suffering precedes glory. Suffering comes before glory. And we're going to begin to see how that works this morning. So would you grab your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 37? That's where Joseph's story begins. Genesis, of course, the very first book of the Bible. Chapter 37. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read chapter 37 in its entirety, but I'm going to make some comments along the way to kind of help uh, us understand what's being read here as we walk through the narrative. You there? Genesis 37. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And again, we looked at Jacob last week. Of course, Jacob being the grandson of Abraham. These are the generations of Jacob, it says in verse 2. And what that is doing is it's pointing us back to what was said in chapter 36. It's a whole long list of names. And it's, it's referencing that backwards. But now in the latter half of verse 2, we begin Joseph's story. It says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Remember, there are 12 brothers, all the sons of Jacob. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. So Jacob, Israel, has two wives. These 12 sons are born to both. In other words, they make up the 12. And it's just telling us here that Joseph was a boy. He was the youngest of them. And it says, Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So not only was Joseph, the youngest of these 12 boys, but he was also, like many of the youngest in your families, the tattletale, right? He's giving his father a bad report. He's telling on his older brothers about bad things that they're doing, bad things that they're up to. He's an informant in the household. Now, you can look at that one of two ways. I think it's meant here to convey something of Joseph's uh, righteousness. He wasn't like his brothers, and we'll see a little bit later that his brothers were pretty, uh, uh, pretty messed up guys with some messed up intentions. Uh, but certainly the way that they would view it is that he's just an annoying little tattletale brat, right? And we'll see that play out. Verse 3, now Israel, again that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. So not only is he a tattletale to his older brothers, but they all know that dad loves him more than the rest of us. So it's setting up Joseph quite well. It's not a good setup for his relationship with his brothers. And we're told here, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, here's this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, understanding the meaning of this dream, he said, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now remember, how many brothers does he have? 11. So this, the meaning of this dream, they can tell, is something to do with them. When he told it to his father... He said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. 
So again, we've seen now multiple indications his brothers hated him. They hated him even more. They hated him even more. And we're seeing it again. They were jealous of him. In other words, they, they really hated him even more, right? They just hated him because of all this. But the end of verse 11, it says, but his father kept the saying in mind. And this is an important setup here. So Jacob is saying, what is this dream that you're having, Joseph? He kind of rebukes him for this dream in which it's a clear, a clear meaning that everybody's going to bow down to this younger brother. But remember from last week, Jacob knew a little something about dreams, didn't he? He knew that God reveals himself to us sometimes or them sometimes in that way. And it seems like he's holding on to that. He's rebuking him, but at the same time, there's this indication that he might recognize that this may be a word from God. And I think what we'll find here is that certainly Joseph understood it to be such. Verse 12, the story continues. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and he found a man wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and he found them at Dothan. Now, one other comment here before we read on here. There's, a, there's a, a, a movement in the story as Moses is narrating this for the original audience that they, they probably would understand and we have to have it explained to us. But the picture is that his brothers have gone away from the house to pasture the sheep, to, to, to care for the flock, and then they've made a decision on their own to go even further away. So there's an indication here that they're further away from home. They're, in other words, they're, they're further into a dangerous position. And Joseph is having to follow them further away from home as well and into a, a more dangerous predicament. Verse 18, his brothers saw him from afar. Before he came near to him, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. And throw him into one, into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. That he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben, the older brother here, is, he's kind of saying, look, I, I'm with you. I don't like this guy either, but let's not kill him. Just don't hurt him. Throw him into this pit anyway. But he has this idea that if I come back later and rescue him, I'm going to look real good in front of dad, right? He's got a selfish motive here. But nonetheless, none of it is good intentions towards Joseph. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, Throw him into this pit in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty and there was no water in it. The word here for stripping him of his robe in Hebrew is the same as the, the, the word used for skinning an animal. This was not just a, they took his clothes off and threw him into a pit. There's, there's violence involved here. They, they violently stripped him, probably beat him somewhat, and threw him into this pit. Where again, there's no water in it. It's, it's life-threatening. And then, verse 25, it says they just sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, one of the brothers, said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, and they lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites 
for 20 shekels of silver. They then took Joseph to Egypt. Now when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? You see where his concern really is? They took Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat, they dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All of his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to carry this until I die. And thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Joseph, but whether you're familiar with it or not, I hope that you can pause to just consider the immense pain and trauma that these experiences must have caused him to feel. Think about what Joseph has gone through to be hated by your family, to be rejected by your family, to be physically abused to the point of attempted murder, to be left for dead, only to be sold into slavery and carted off to a foreign land. If you can just begin to understand what this young man endured, you have to ask the question, how much more trauma could a person take? How much more could any person endure? And unfortunately for Joseph, as you read on the next few chapters, you find out that things don't get much better for him. We're told here at the end of the story in chapter 37 that he he eventually gets sold again to Potiphar, who was, uh, you know, a a, a part of the court of Pharaoh, right? He's in Potiphar's house. Well, what happens in Potiphar's house is that Potiphar has a wife who tries to seduce Joseph. And Joseph doesn't want to have anything to do with that, righteously enough. And when he tries to flee from her advances, she falsely accuses him of trying to rape her. And has him thrown into prison. So Joseph finds himself now falsely accused and in prison. And while he's in prison, two of the other inmates around him start having dreams. And Joseph interprets the dreams for them. One of them is an unfavorable interpretation. You're going to actually die in here. And the other one, you're going to be let free. You're going to get out of jail. And the next day, those two things actually come true. And so the guy with the favorable interpretation happens to be, again, someone who works in the household of Pharaoh. He's his cupbearer. And he's so grateful that this dream interpretation was true, that it was legitimized, that he says, Joseph, I'm not going to forget you. As soon as I get out of here, I will remember you. We'll come back and we'll get you. Except what happens is he gets out and he's so excited, he goes back to his life and he forgets all about Joseph. And Joseph ends up rotting there in prison for several more years. Can you imagine the pain of spending years in prison on a wrongful conviction? I think it would be safe to say that Joseph had every reason to be bitter. Bitter about his life. Bitter about his family. And bitter at God. And I want you to consider your own disappointments in life, your own traumas, your own sufferings, and ask yourself the question, am I bitter? Am I bitter at my life? Am I bitter at people? Am I bitter at God? It seems almost expected to have a reaction like that, doesn't it? 
But the thing about this text is it doesn't say that Joseph was bitter at all. In fact, it tells us that he was never bitter. He never actually gave in to bitterness or despair. Why? Because he knew something so deeply in his bones that it sustained him through all of it. Those dreams that he had received, the ones that he had shared with his brothers and his father, he knew them to be from God. And he believed that. What did he know then in Potiphar's house? Look at chapter 39, verse 2. It says, The Lord was with Joseph. He was with Joseph. And despite those hardships, he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. What did he know in Potiphar's house? He knew God was with him. He believed it. When he got thrown into prison, what did he know in prison? Chapter 39 again. Look at verse 21. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor of the sight of the keeper of the prison. Why wasn't he bitter? Because he knew and he believed that the Lord was with him. Even in the midst of his sufferings, even in the midst of his trauma, he believed God was with him. How could he believe that? Because he believed the word of God given to him in the dreams. What had God told him in the dreams? He told him about who he was and what God was going to do in his life. And he believed that what God said was more certain and more important than what his present circumstances were telling him. That's key. And his belief was vindicated. Because just as everything in Joseph's life was upended in a single day when his brothers threw him into that pit, so too did everything change in a day. In chapter 41... We read that when Pharaoh started to have dreams, and those dreams were troubling to him, that former inmate in the prison who was his cupbearer finally remembered, oh, there's this guy named Joseph who has a God-given ability, a God-given gift to interpret dreams. And so he tells Pharaoh, and Pharaoh calls for him to be released from prison to come interpret his dream. And we're going to pick up the story in chapter 41, verse 28. So here we see Joseph now standing before Pharaoh to interpret the dream. And it says, it is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all of the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine. And all of the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow it, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God. God will shortly bring it about. So now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land to take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all of the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine." Do you see what he's done here? He's not only interpreted the dream, there's about to be good years, there's going to be some real bad years. So store up the food from the good years that'll get us through the bad years. You've got to set somebody over this task. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? In whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all of my people 
shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand. He put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all of the land of Egypt. I'll stop there. It was now 16 years. 16 years since the day that he had been sold into slavery by his brothers. That is a long time to suffer. It was enough time for most of us to have given up. Most of us to have given in to despair. 16 years. But again, Joseph endured because he believed and trusted God and what God had told him about who he was and what he was going to do. And God, in his due time, finally vindicated Joseph's faith. He was the second most powerful man in the world all of a sudden. Placed there by the sovereignty of God through the sufferings that he'd endured. To cut to the chase, we have to see how this story ends. Remember the original dream. His brothers would bow down to him. His family would bow down to him. He would rule over them. Well, guess what happens? This wisdom that God gave to Joseph to store up the food supplies meant that when this famine hit, the severe famine, only Egypt would have enough means to endure it. And so it meant that everybody else around Egypt would have to come into Egypt to get their food. And Joseph's brothers traveled from Canaan to do just that. They had to come into Egypt to get their food, and when they arrived, they had to stand before, guess who? Joseph. And they had to bow down before him. And they had to ask him for mercy. The thing is, they didn't recognize him in that moment. They assumed that their younger brother was probably long dead by now, but he certainly recognized them. And when he saw them, all of the pain of their betrayals rushed back to him. And he had to actually run out of the room so he could cry. He could weep as he sort of relived the trauma of their relationship. But when he came back and gathered himself, he revealed to them through tears who he really was. And you can imagine what they would have felt like in that moment. Incredible shame and incredible fear. Oh my goodness. Our little brother could and probably should kill us right now. Why shouldn't he? But Joseph didn't hate them back. He had compassion on them. And in chapter 50, we see the climax moment of the whole story. Look over at chapter 50. Verse 18. It says, His brothers also came and fell down before him, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. This is after being told how fearful they were for their lives, right? We, we're, we, yes, we're bound to you, brother. Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Don't fear. For am I in the place of God? In other words, I'm not here to judge you. That's God's responsibility and role altogether. But listen to what he says then. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. You threw me into a pit. You stripped me of my clothes. You left me for dead. You sold me into slavery. You meant evil against me. But then he says this. He says, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Look up for a second. That is a remarkable statement for him to make. He didn't say here, God used it for good. He didn't say, 
you know, you, you meant evil, but, but God fixed it. He said, no, God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Here's the answer to the question we opened up with. Where was God in the midst of all of Joseph's sufferings? He was right in the middle of it. This is key. We need to understand it. Where is God in the midst of my sufferings? Christian, God is always with you and God purposes all things in your life for his greater will, his greater understanding. Remember what Joseph could know throughout all of these sufferings. The Lord was with him. God didn't just sort of come in and fix a mess. God was in it all. He meant it all. And he meant it for good. He said, there was a lot of evil that happened in Joseph's life. Absolutely. Does that mean that God commits evil? Does God mean for evil? No. What does Joseph say to his brothers? You meant it for evil. That was your purpose. That was your intent. That was your responsibility. You meant it for evil. But he also recognized that God is sovereign over what you meant. He's not responsible for what you did but he's sovereign over the evil actions of nature and human beings to actually purpose them for the good of those he loves. What does this tell us? It tells you this. If you're suffering, if you're experiencing trauma, if you're in despair this morning, it tells you this. God's people will suffer, but you are never ultimately a victim of your circumstances. You are never ultimately a victim of your circumstances. Moses wrote so much on the life of Joseph to help God's people understand their own hardships. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we looked at the life of Abraham. I think this is Joseph's Uh, great-grandfather, when God gave him the covenant promise, he told him what the future would bring for this people, this nation that he was going to bring about from Joseph's line, or excuse me, from Abraham's line. In Genesis 15, he says, the Lord says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. How did all of that come about? It came about in the life of his great-grandson, Joseph, who was sold into slavery and ended up in that foreign land. And because all of the circumstances that God purposed through that He was placed into a position of command where he could care for and save the people around him, including his own family. We're told there at the end of Genesis that his own family was allowed to then come into Egypt to find safe harbor there. And eventually, they grew. And they became more than just a family. They became a people. Several million of them, in fact. And that ended up causing then problems down the road in which Pharaoh uh, enslaves them and they are oppressed for 400 years and they're then saved again out of Egypt through Moses and delivered yet again. I mean, the people that Moses is writing to, that's their story. And they want to know, how did we get here? We got here because God is sovereign in suffering and he always brings it about for his purposes, for his people's good to save many people. God's suffering servant Joseph became the deliverer of his people. And the suffering was necessary in order to accomplish the sovereign plan of God. 
And as this whole series has been designed to do, and as the Nancy Guthrie quote I brought in the beginning reminds us, this points us to the ultimate way in which God saves his people through his own son. Jesus, who suffered for us. This is how Guthrie pulls all that together. She says, like Joseph, Jesus left the comforts of his father's home and ventured into a dangerous and foreign land. Like Joseph, Jesus too was confident in God's plan to use him to save his brothers who hated him. He too was stripped of his clothing and descended into the pit of of death, death on a cross and into the tomb. He too cried out with tears to him who was able to save him from death, as it says in Hebrews 5, 7, but he was not saved. But it was his confidence in what was ahead when he would be exalted in heaven at the right hand of God, surrounded by a great multitude of his brothers on whom he showed compassion and mercy that empowered Jesus to endure the cross with joy. Jesus' death was the result of human evil. Sinful men and women rejected him and hung him on that cross. God was not responsible for that evil. Humans are responsible. But God sovereignly purposed it for good. He was right in the middle of it to bring about that many people should be kept alive, eternally alive. I began by asking how we ought to think about hardship and suffering as Christians. You need to know where God is in the midst of your suffering. He's right in the middle of it. He's right in the midst of it. And here's a few application points from the life of Joseph and the ministry from Jesus that I hope you'll take away. First one is this. Hardship and suffering are to be expected in the Christian life. It's to be expected. Suffering exists in this world because sin exists in this world. It's inevitable. Just as sin is inevitable, suffering is inevitable. And you're going to face it because you live in this world. There's a particular kind of suffering, though, as we see here in this text, you meant it for evil kind of suffering that comes because people oppose God and therefore they oppose his people. But remember what Jesus said. In John 15, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So what's he telling us, Christians? He's saying, don't be surprised when you're mistreated, especially in the name of of Christ. It's hard to fully grasp the existence of suffering, the existence of, of hardship. It's a huge topic to talk about, way more than I can cover in a sermon. But let me just give you a Let me give you a visual that that just sort of helps me to understand why suffering, and particularly suffering as believers, is not only expected, but sometimes intense. The the picture that I get in my my mind is one of a stream that flows. You ever been into a fast-moving body of water, like a river or a stream, and and you step into that current, and it it wants to pull you in a direction, right? That that stream is, is basically... In, in, my, in my, my sort of visual here, it's, it's a depiction of what sin is like in the world. Sin is a fast-moving stream. We are all caught in that stream, and regardless of whether or not we want to or not, it's carrying us in a direction. It carries us in a direction that's away from God, 
away from health, away from what we were created for, to destruction. That's what sin does. We're all in that stream. And if you're in a stream like that, you know that not only are you in that stream, everybody else is in that stream. All of the destruction that that water has, has brought about is, is being pulled into that stream. And so you're probably getting hit by sticks and rocks along the way. You're getting battered and bruised along the way. It's just carrying you. That's life. What does it mean for God then to save us? It doesn't immediately mean that God pulls us out of the stream, does it? Our great hope is that his ultimate salvation is he pulls us out of that stream and he sets us on the dry ground. That's the hope of heaven. That's the hope of of Jesus coming back and setting all things right. That's the hope of recreation. That's not the current reality of the Christian life. Current salvation is he just what? He turns us around and he starts moving us back towards himself with the hope that the dry ground is coming. But when I'm turned around in the midst of a fast-moving stream, guess what? The suffering intensifies. That's the Christian life. Dry ground's coming. That's our hope. That's why we endure. But in the meantime, you're just going against the flow. Hardship and suffering are to be expected in the Christian life. That's the first thing. The second thing is, again, that God is sovereign, sovereign in our suffering and has a purpose for it. Remember what Joseph said, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God has a purpose in it. And we look to the cross, we look to Jesus, and we could say, yes, it points us to Jesus. God had a purpose in the evil that human beings intended. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, as he's preaching for the first time to the people who crucified Jesus, he said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. See what he's doing there? You did it. But this was according to the definite foreknowledge and plan of God you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men you're responsible God raised him up loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it he had a purpose in it and that purpose was to overcome the evil and the death that you're responsible for And of course, Paul says these great words in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Those are promises, Christians. God has a purpose in all the stuff you're dealing with. Even the evil stuff. What are you going through this morning? Can you believe that? Can you believe that? God is in the middle of it. He's got a purpose in it for you and or for others. You think the believers in Afghanistan this morning are thinking about that? I bet they are. I know they are. There was a great article uh, written in the Gospel Coalition uh, website this week about pastors in Afghanistan and their understanding of suffering and the sovereignty of God. And in that article, it talked about the fact that in June, they had an opportunity to register themselves with the government as Christians, which is something that they had never had opportunity to do before and never probably uh, would have necessarily wanted to do before because it's illegal to convert to Christianity in Afghanistan. But they were somehow given this chance to do it, and they decided... We're going to do it. We're going to register ourselves. We're going, to, we're going to sort of proclaim publicly that we're Christians. And people were saying, why are you doing that? that? That may not be a very good idea. You could be arrested for doing that. Here's what some of those pastors said in the article. They said, well, what about our children and our grandchildren? Somebody should make this sacrifice so the next generations can openly call themselves followers of Jesus. They weren't doing this for themselves. They were trusting God. 
for somebody else's benefit. And that was in June. Well, what just happened? That government has collapsed. The Taliban has taken over. And now these guys are not just outed with a government who doesn't really condone what they're doing. They're outed with a, uh, do you call it a government? I don't even know what it is anymore, but people who definitely will kill them for doing what they've done. So the article says that the weekend before the Americans pulled out and the Taliban came in, there was an Afghan-English church retreat. And on the first night of the retreat, they learned that a pastor in Afghanistan had received a letter from the Taliban saying, we know who you are, we know what you do, and we know where to find you. And by Saturday, the Taliban were at his door. Of all the topics on Sunday morning of that retreat... This pastor who wrote the article says, we tackled the plagues of Exodus 7 through 11 and read there at times Pharaoh hardened his heart and at other times God hardened Pharaoh's heart. An Afghan evangelist in the room added, don't forget that God called the most wicked king on earth, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. In Jeremiah 27, 6 and in Jeremiah 43, 10, and he said, God is most certainly calling the Taliban my servant. That's an understanding of the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. That's an understanding that God has a purpose in the midst of our suffering. God's in control. God is sovereign in our sufferings and has a purpose in it. Lastly, our recognition of God's sovereign invisible hand in our hardship then leaves no room for bitterness. There has been and you know this, there's been an increased awareness and in lots of public discourse about the effects of trauma over the past few years. We're talking about it a lot more than we ever, I think, did before. And I think that's a good thing. I, I think that uh, we should be thankful that we're processing trauma, that we're processing how actions from previous years and experience affect us today. But here's a concern. I wonder how much of our approach to that is actually helping how is our approach to that helping, or is it making things worse? The way in which we're talking about and processing the trauma of our past, are we seeing hurting people truly being healed through that additional attention, through that additional information, or are we just being crippled by it? And I got to tell you, as a pastor, that's one of my great concerns as I, as I deal with people who are processing through trauma and suffering and hardship in their life, I'm not seeing a lot of healing. I see a lot of crippling. And I wonder how much we make it that every difficult experience of our past, every traumatic experience is just a means for us to then sort of learn to blame somebody else for our disappointments and get bitter instead of being made whole again. So how do we be made whole again? Like Joseph, we've got to remember what God has said to us. Remember who you are, and remember what God has said he's going to do. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peter says, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How often do we cripple under trauma because we just feel like this, is, this shouldn't be happening? This, is, this, this doesn't happen to anybody but me, right? Like He says, no, don't be surprised. But rejoice, actually. What? Yes, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering precedes glory. All creation is groaning and crying out for renewal, for redemption. But guess what? It's coming, and when it does, glory. That's our hope. It's our future, and it's certain. 
Paul also says in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. You say, yeah, but that's still in the future. That's not my present reality. What's your present reality? Romans 8 also says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you, sustaining you, keeping you, sealing you, directing you to the promises of God, reminding you of your position as a child of God. And he says, then if children, heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering precedes glory. There's no room for bitterness in that, though. Because glory's coming. Hope is certain. God's promises are to be believed. I'm not a victim of my circumstances. I'm a child of God. Say that with me. I'm not a victim of my circumstances. I'm a child of God. I'm not a victim of my circumstances. I'm a child of God. I'm not defined by my trauma. I'm identified with Jesus Christ. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. Let's pray.